making our way through 1 Corinthians and drawing near to the end. We're jumping into chapter 15. Just a few comments before we get into the Word this morning, uh, just for the sake of clarity and uh, helping you guys understand um, and appreciate, I hope, uh, some of the things that we do as a church. Uh, last week you had the privilege of hearing from Mike McLaren, and Mike is uh, one of the leaders and has pastored as well at a Crossway Church, a sister church down in Attleboro. And, and it may be a little different for you in your experience to have guys kind of from other churches come in and, and, and speak. And part of why we do that is because we're a part of a family of churches that's a fairly close-knit family called Sovereign Grace Ministries. And, and we seek to work together and kind of we seek to cross-pollinate in a sense. I think that's a, a word Mike used perhaps last week. We seek to cross-pollinate and benefit from one another and the different leaders in our different family and churches. So our relationship is it's pretty tight, and, and we benefit from having others in occasionally. Um, so that's part of why we do that. We, we value uh, sound doctrine and teaching from the pulpit, and one way for us to benefit from that is to have in brothers from other churches. So we'll do that occasionally. That's not to say we don't want to see people within our church raised up and, and preaching and growing into that, growing into eldership. We are committed as a family of churches and as a local church to team ministry. So we are in an unusual situation right now with a church plant where there's really right now only one elder, and that's me. And I'm very uncomfortable with that. I want to be part of a team. So we're looking to develop elders, to develop men. So you've seen, if you've been here long enough, we have had some other men preach and we hope to continue to do that and develop even more and more guys from our midst. It's my prayer. It's my constant prayer. And probably at least a quarter of what I do during the week of just seeking to invest in men, uh, future leaders, be, be they eventual elders or deacons or leaders of any sort for us. So that is my commitment. So I want you to know that in case you were wondering, you know, what's going on? Why are we having these guys in? And I just wanted you to understand why we do that. Um, we value our sister churches and our family, but we also value God raising up ones in our midst. And, and currently, in the month of March, we really didn't have anyone from within lined up, so, so I've asked some other brothers to come in. So last week we had Mike. Next week I'll be at Chesapeake Community Church, is our sister church that played a large role in planting us here. They've been very gracious to us, too, and uh, giving us uh, gifts financially to help us in, in our efforts here. So they are dear to us, and that's where our retreat will be. We'll be with them, the men's retreat. So I'll be updating them on, on what God's been doing. So please pray for that time. And in my absence, one of their pastors, Ari Mangrum, who's a dear brother, is going to come here and, and, and lead us in worship and preach as well. So just uh, you can pray for that time as well. And my hope is as we go along, too, to, to have other brothers from our midst uh, share with us on some Sundays as we go. So I hope that helps you understand what we're about, what we're seeking to do, why we do it. And uh, I think it's a great benefit to us. But with that, let's uh, transition and look at the Word of God this morning. Let me pray before we, before we read. Lord, we just thank you for your Word. We thank you for your care for your church, Lord. You've given us your Word, and you've given us your Spirit, and you've given us grace gifts in many forms, Lord. And, and the grace gift of pastor, teacher, and the, um, you have given, Lord. And So, Lord, we look to you. We rely on you, Lord, it, and I can't come confident in myself in any way, but we can come confident in you and your word and your spirit and in your grace. And so, Lord, we look to you. I'm a, a weak man, a, a 
an earthen vessel. And so I cry out for your anointing and your blessing. And we ask you, Lord, to give us ears to hear. We pray that you would direct us and lead us in this time. Teach us, and you would be magnified as a result. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We're moving into another section now in 1 Corinthians. Paul is transitioning in some ways to another theme, an important theme. And um, all along throughout the book, we know that it, in many ways what he's doing is he's leading the Corinthians through what it is to live gospel-centered lives as a church and the implications of that. So this section as well fits within that. So let's take a look at chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. I'll be reading. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-11 In this section, Paul is introducing a new theme, and that theme is the issue of the the resurrection of Christ. Apparently in Corinth, there's some problems with their understanding and belief of that. But like in other sections, Paul is not just addressing the particular issue. Like he did elsewhere, he is going to kind of back up and get at deeper things and address deeper issues for the Corinthians and by God's grace for us even. So there's much to learn, not just about the resurrection in particular, though that's a wonderful lesson in and of itself, but there's much to learn beyond that and deeper than that. So this morning we're going to start to take a look at how Paul brings these truths to them and and the different things that he is saying to them. We were down in Florida last week. We had a wonderful time in Florida. Um, We had some free flights and a in a free hotel and, and a gift that we got. And so we were able to go down for a week and had a, a wonderful time in Florida. It was 75 to 85 degrees and sunny and breezy the whole week. You can tell by my deep, dark tan how nice it was. Um, but we just had a great time. One of the things we did was we went to the Everglades. And the Everglades is this vast wilderness in some ways in southern Florida. And we took a swamp boat ride, and it was a blast sitting on these boats driven by fans going 40 miles per hour through the, the backwater and seeing alligators and, and wild boar and all this stuff. We just had a blast. But before we did that, we had a presentation on the Everglades. What are the Everglades? And it was very interesting. The Everglades are really this rich ecosystem, all sorts of fish and all sorts of animals. Alligators we know are there, and, and manatee. We saw some manatee. And it's just a very rich Rich, rich ecosystem. Uh, just, you know, a, a system. 
where God has raised up and, and maintains all these different specimens and species of animal and plants. It's just, it's really quite amazing driving through it in the swamp boat, especially at 40 miles per hour. Uh, so it was just uh, great learning these things, but it was something that they talked to us about that I didn't really know up till then, is that the, the Everglades is actually a vast river of grass. That it's a vast river, it's a shallow, very shallow river, a freshwater river that flows from the north, like near Orlando, down to Lake Okeechobee, and then from there down to the, to the gulf, I guess, down the bottom there. It's a vast river. And they're having problems with the river, actually, because in the northern section, just south of Okeechobee and up towards Orlando, there's all this development going on. And so there, there's some pollutants getting in the water. And also, back in the 30s, they made all these canals to divert the water from Okeechobee to, to the ocean to keep floods from happening. And so they're choking the Everglades, actually. It's, it's in a sense like they're dirtying the water and they're turning off the water faucet. So there's fish are dying. There's not as many species. There's all this stuff happening. The salt water is making its way into the Everglades, and it's dying. Well, why tell a story on the Everglades? Well, I tell it to illustrate what I think Paul is bringing up to the Corinthians in this section, and that is the gospel is the source of our life in Christ. It is the source of our life in Christ. And if we want there to be life for us as Christians, if we want to walk out in all the things that God has for us and all the ways he wants us to walk, we must have a flow a pure and steady flow of the gospel into our lives and out. So we, in a sense, as a church and a people, are like the Everglades. The gospel is that pure water flowing in. And that's what I think he's saying in this section, that all things for the Christian flow from the source of the gospel. And failure to grasp the gospel is, in a sense, turning off the water that will choke the ecosystem. Failing to grasp the gospel is really failure to live the Christian life. So we must, what I think Paul is saying here, is that we must firmly grasp what matters most. Of first importance, he says, that is the gospel. So we're going to look at how Paul brings this truth out in this passage. We're going to look at how he communicates to the Corinthians first the relevance of the gospel. So that they would grasp the relevance of the gospel. So we want to grasp the relevance of the gospel. Then we're going to talk about the elements of the gospel. We want to grasp the elements of the gospel. And then Paul offers himself as an example of a gospel-centered life. So we want to grasp the example of a gospel-centered life. So relevance, elements, and example of the gospel. In verse 1, Paul starts and says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. He wants to remind them of the gospel. He starts out this whole section wanting to remind them of the gospel. Paul understands this Everglade phenomenon. He wants the Corinthians to know they need to be reminded of the gospel. If he's going to address any issue in their lives, and we've seen this throughout Corinthians, he must start with the gospel. He must remind them of the gospel. He must remind them of the gospel and it's all its implications. The Christian life flows from the centrality of the gospel. So he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. This is a gospel, he says, I preach to you. And then he says, you received it in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. See, Paul is countering what may be a common perception of the gospel, that the gospel is really for unbelievers. The gospel is the message of God's forgiveness in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. This message of the gospel, many would think it's for unbelievers only, because it's what makes an unbeliever come to the point of being a believer. Yes, indeed, it does do that. But it is not just a doorway into the Christian life. It is the source of the Christian life. And that's why he would remind them of that. He wants them to know that this gospel has past, 
present and future relevance. Past, present, and future relevance. So he uses different verb tenses there. He says, which you received, past tense, you received this gospel. In which you stand, present tense, you now stand in this gospel. So not only is it relevant for your past, it's relevant for your present. And then he says, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast. By which you are being saved. So, in a sense, future or continuous or uh, present continuous or future tense. So you received it, you stand now, and you are being saved. There's a future in the gospel. He wants them to see its relevance for past, present, and future purposes. It's always relevant. The gospel is always relevant, in other words. It's relevant in the past. It's relevant today. It's relevant in the nitty-gritty of life. It's relevant when you wake up in the morning. It's relevant at work. It's relevant when you go to bed. It's always relevant. Past, it was relevant. Present, it's to be relevant. And future, it's to be relevant in every way. That's what he's saying. David Pryor says in his commentary on this, on 1 Corinthians, we never therefore move on from the cross, only into a more profound understanding of the cross. We only deepen. We're only to deepen in our knowledge of the cross. Part of what we prayed this morning is that we would know the wonder of the cross, because it's always relevant. So they had received the gospel. Paul reminds them, you received this. In a sense, he's saying, Corinthians, you know, this gospel and your reception of it is why you exist as a church. It's what brought you to this place. It's what made the difference. It's what made the difference in your life so you are no longer running the road everyone else is. You're no longer living in the society the way everyone else is. Your reception of the gospel, your experience of the gospel is why you're a church. You received it. And, and we know Paul was there in Corinth for a year and a half. And there was fruitful ministry. And God did a lot of things in that area, in Corinth. And he raised up a church. They had received the gospel. And he wants to remind them that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference in why you are where you are today. And folks, it makes all the difference in your lives, if you're a believer, why you are where you are today. You received the gospel. The gospel had relevance in your past. God brought the gospel to bear on your life. And now, if you're a believer, you are forgiven. You stand in the gospel. You experience the gospel in its life-giving truth. Eddie uh, Currier just celebrated 10 years of sobriety. And if you know Eddie's story, yes. Eddie was an addict, uh, addicted to the sin of drugs and alcohol. And, and God broke in on his life and broke in in a dramatic way and, and introduced the gospel. And it came in power, came in power to break that addiction so that Eddie can now stand 10 years later free. Not because he had the gumption and the willpower, but because God invaded his life. He received this gospel and it made all the difference. So he stands today with us because of that reality. The gospel has tremendous reality for Eddie. It has tremendous reality for us. So we look back. We see we received it and understand this gospel had relevance in the past. Paul also says, in which you stand. So you received it. It made all the difference. And now, in which you stand. You now stand in the gospel. Your experience of life is one of standing in the gospel. The Christian life is a life of standing in the gospel. Your current ability to live and experience the life of God in you and through you is because you stand in the gospel. I love Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. This is, a, this is a, often a, a verse I share in the morning when I wake my kids up because I want them to wake up to the, the, the truth of the gospel, the, the truth of God's mercy. It says, 
Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That verse, the Lord's great love for us, because of that we're not consumed, his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, when, and when the boys wake up, I want them to know God's mercy and grace is new today. He's a God of grace and mercy. You're forgiven, and I, and I want that to be their first thought. And his grace is there. Well, that's because of the gospel. That verse is not true if you are not one who now stands on the gospel. It's not true for you. We want it to be true for you, but it isn't if you're not standing on the gospel. Because of Christ and what he's done, his death on the cross, his resurrection, we can lay hold of that promise that his mercies are new. So your ability, my ability to live life, to experience grace, to be able to get up in the morning and have motivation to live our life is because of the gospel. It's on which you now stand. You stand in the gospel. And we need the gospel to be preached to us. We need to hear the gospel. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Because it's a present thing. Paul says, in which you now stand. It's to be a present experience. We don't just look back ten years, as wonderful as that is, and say, hey, I experienced the gospel ten years ago. We are to experience the gospel today. We are to stand on the gospel. We are to live our lives on the truth of the gospel. On the reality of Christ dying for our sins, rising again, and all that that means. So it's to be our present reality as well. It's to influence everything. Everything about our lives. It's to give us hope. And I know for me, there are times, and I've shared this before, when, when I get up and there's just gloom and doom all over me. And I don't understand all the reasons why. But I find when I remember Christ crucified, and I remember that I belong to Him, and when I behold Him on the cross and remember Him on the cross and Him risen and realize that I am in Him and with Him, He has purchased me, I belong to Him, it just dispels the clouds. And I find I wake up and, it's, and get up off my knees at that point and it's just not as gloomy as it once was. That's to be our experience. That's what the Lord wants. If you are someone who struggles with despair or despondency at times, that's the cure. The gospel is the cure. Nothing else, nothing else ultimately will help you. Now, there are things that may assist you and help you in some way, but ultimately the cure is the gospel. And it's truth coming and affecting your mind and affecting your heart and then affecting your emotions so that you experience something different than despair and gloom. So not only is it to be something we stand on to make us be able to experience life and experience joy, but it's also something that should produce fruit in us in other ways. Listen to what John Piper says about this. He's speaking as from the book of Romans, and he says, And Paul labors mercifully, mercifully for 16 chapters in Romans to tell us the gospel and how it works to save believers. And I fully believe that the reason he does this is that when believers know and love and live on the meat of the gospel, we will be so gospel-filled and gospel-shaped and gospel-dependent and gospel-driven and gospel-hoping and gospel-joyful that no one will need to tell us why we need to share the gospel or how to share the gospel. We will be so thankful and so desperately, day by day, dependent on the gospel for our own hope of eternal life and our own sanity and our own stability and our own marriages or singleness that it will be impossible not to know that people need the gospel and why they need it and how it relates to their biggest needs because we know we need it and why we need it and how it meets our biggest needs day by day. Paul is reminding the Corinthians that you stand on the gospel. We are to stand on the gospel. The gospel has tremendous relevance for us 
because by it we stand. And then he says, later, in that same section, and by which you are being saved. You are being saved. It's a present continuous. You are being saved. The tense is present continuous. And that tense may make you a little tense this morning to hear me say that, that it's present continuous. Because you may have been taught, once saved, always saved. Anyone ever heard that phrase? That is a true phrase, but it's not the complete picture. And, and I, would, I would suggest we don't use it because it doesn't communicate the completeness of what salvation means in Scripture. You see, the biblical view of salvation encompasses the whole picture of salvation. It encompasses being forgiven for our sins. But it also encompasses being saved on the final day, the day of judgment. And God pronouncing this one is one of mine. Look at the person's life. Look at the fruit of the gospel in their life. This one, obviously, to everyone, is one of mine. And because he's one of mine, he or she is forgiven and is mine and is to be with me forever. So salvation in Scripture encompasses everything from the day that you came to know Christ as Savior, as the one who saves you and will save you, to the very day where you stand before the judgment throne and are declared innocent and declared one of His and receive a new body and a new life in Him. That is biblical salvation. So we are being saved. Maybe I can help you or convince you with some other verses in Scripture. Romans 13. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. It's speaking of salvation being nearer now. Future. Philippians 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's something left unfinished, apparently. 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, put on... Uh, But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. The hope of salvation, the anticipation of the fullness of our salvation as a helmet. Peter, 1 Peter 1.5, speaks of us as God's people who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So you're receiving it, you're experiencing it, but it's not finished yet. So the gospel is relevant for the past, relevant for the present, and relevant for the future. For by it we are being saved. Salvation is the process where the justified sinner, the sinner that is declared forgiven and righteous, is progressively... um, Let me see, how did I phrase this? I want to be careful here because it's important that we understand this. Salvation is a process where the justified sinner is rescued entirely from the effects of sin and the wrath of God to receive new life forever in Christ and with Christ. It's the process. Now, maybe you're still wondering, I don't know, that's not really sitting well. I'm worried, Paul, you were getting into some heresy here. Let me give you a little bit of the Word of God again. Romans 5, a wonderful picture. We're, we're actually memorizing this section, Romans 5, 1 to 10. We're memorizing this as a family. And it lays it out, I think, in one paragraph in a way that I think will serve you. Listen, I'll just read through it and then talk about it a little bit. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, listen to that, have been justified, something that's already happened, past tense. Justified means declared righteous. 
Declared forgiven, declared clean, declared acceptable to God and ready for heaven. That's what justified means, okay? So it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, present tense. If you want to turn to that, that might be helpful too. Romans 5, 1 to 10. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Sound familiar? We stand now in this grace. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we have been justified, we experience peace now, and we are hoping in the glory of God. We're hoping for that day when we receive new life and we're done with sin, we're glorified in His presence. Paul continues, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom has been given to us. So there's this process of trials and suffering producing something in us. There's a process here. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then listen to this. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, We have now been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Future tense. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So this whole verse is saying there's a past aspect of our salvation have been justified. Justified is not a process. You either are declared righteous or are not. You, you either are called righteous by God because Christ died for your sins and you have repented and put your faith in Him, or you are not. There's nothing process about that. It's done. And the day that you recognize your sin and recognize the goodness of God to you and recognize that He has been good to you in every way in His creation, in all things, He has always been good. When you recognize He is good in His Son, His perfect Son, and recognize in light of that goodness that you are a sinner who has broken His law and has rebelled against Him, and recognize that He has provided a solution for that in the Son who died for your sins, suffered and died for your sins and rose again. When you recognize that and you turn from your sins and place your faith there, not yourself, you are justified. You stand justified. You have been justified, called clean, Declared righteous once and for all. It's done. But there is a process Romans 5, Romans 5 talks about of trials and suffering and endurance and character and testing and preparation for heaven. The Christian life is not just about justification, though that is the wonder of wonders of the Christian life. It's also about the Lord process, processing us and saving us, and sanctifying us, and setting us apart, and using trials. Folks, hear that? Using trials as part of His plan. I got it. It's right here in the book. We know it's true. That's how He does it. So don't be surprised when you face trials of many kinds. This is God's plan of salvation. Setting you apart. Calling you His own. And that process will be done on the day, on Judgment Day, when we stand united in Christ and declared, yes, indeed, this one is forgiven, this one is one of mine, and now enter into my rest, the joy of your Father. Come and receive your new body and new life in me. Then our salvation will be complete. And so there's a process. And so Paul, remember we're talking about 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is saying, 
by which you are being saved. The gospel not only has relevance for past, not only relevance for present, but it is by the thing by which you are being saved. It's the, the main instrument, the main truth of God to meet you and to, and to work in your life and to work sin out of your life and sustain you in trial. And it's on which you stand so on that final day you are declared one of His and righteous. It is by which we are being saved. So the gospel is not just for the unbeliever, it's for the believer. And if we want to grow in Christ, we need to center on the gospel. John Piper again says it better than, than I ever could. Everything God requires of us as believers assumes that we are justified, accepted, forgiven, acquitted, counted righteous with His righteousness, not ours. From that secure position, we must fight sin and unbelief. And the one who fights like that as a justified sinner will live. See, if you are His indeed, you will continue to grasp and hold on to the Gospel. And as one who's already been declared righteous by the truth of the Gospel, you will fight sin. And you will walk out the Christian life. And you, the, the fruit of your life will declare, indeed, this is one of mine. And on Judgment Day, that, that your works will be evaluated, folks. And it's, your works will not get you in, but your works will indeed declare that this is a sheep and not a goat. So it's by the Gospel and the truth of the Gospel that we walk out the realities of the Gospel and demonstrate that we are His. We belong to Him. By the power of the Gospel, by daily living in the Gospel and believing it and living out its ramifications and enjoying its promises and being wild by its glory and delivered in its power, we ultimately realize the completion of what it began. We go from justification to glorification by the Spirit-empowered grasping of the Gospel. The question this morning is, do you grasp the Gospel? Are you grasping the Gospel? Are you grasping the Gospel? Paul continues in this section more on this topic. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So if you hold fast, unless you believe in vain. See, real faith that comes from God and is a gift holds on to the gospel. Real faith will hold on to the gospel. Real faith will continue to grasp the gospel. Empty faith, vain faith, that's the same word, empty faith, vain faith, will not. It may kind of taste of it. It may kind of say, yeah, this is kind of good, but, but when trials come, when life gets hard, it's going to release its grip. And it will probably stay released. Now, I don't mean to say that real faith sometimes loosens its grip. Real, t- real faith, in some ways, sometimes feels like it, it totally lets go. But over the long haul, real faith will grasp and hold on to the gospel, will hold on to Jesus Christ and what he has done. And you may ask the question of yourself, and we should ask the question of ourselves: how do we know the difference? How do we know whether I got real faith or empty faith? Well, there's a lot of answers in Scripture, and I can't get to them all in one message. And I encourage you to look at First John, full, full of of the things that identify real faith. Look at the whole Bible. Look at the Book of Revelation. For the sake of our section, though, I think the way you know the difference is the holding on. Real faith continues to hold on. 
continues to hold on. And I want us to understand something about that, though, that's important. Other scriptures would teach us that that ability to hold on does not come from you. And the focus should not be how much I have to grip, how much I have to try to strain. It's not like you're hanging off the side of a building and you've got to exert your strength to hold on. See, the gospel itself has gripping power. It has gripping power. And the focus for us should not be how well am I holding on, but how well is it holding on to me? When I see this gospel, when I experience it, is it holding on to me? It has holding power, folks. That's why we focus on it. That's why we're redundant here. That's why we repeat the gospel over and over and over again. That's why we sing about it. That's why we preach it. That's why when we get together in small groups, we talk about it. That's why we celebrate communion, a visible sign, picture of the gospel. Because it has holding power. And when you see it, and when you grasp it, and you start to to understand, and the Spirit of God breathes on the truth of the gospel... It has holding power. So the question is not so much how well are you holding, how well is it holding you? How well is it gripping you? It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Not you. And your ability to hold on comes from being held by it. So the answer is, how do I know if I have real faith? I would say, continue looking at the gospel. Continue gazing on the cross. And allow its effect to... To, to work in your life so that you hold on. And if you continue to hold on because of that, your faith is indeed genuine. For the sake of this section, that's, I think, the answer to that. So let us grasp the gospel as it grasps us. So Paul is bringing these truths to bear for the Corinthians because they need to understand the gospel. Their particular misunderstanding, it seems, in this section is the resurrection. There's question about the resurrection, not quite understanding, maybe denying the resurrection. I don't think Paul's just trying to address the resurrection here, though, because this, as we've seen, is a book full of the gospel and its implications. So I think this section, addressing the gospel and, and the resurrection, is a fitting bookend to the book of 1 Corinthians because it is a book that teaches us about the implications of the gospel. So he's wanting them to understand, in many ways, the importance of this. But their particular struggle would have been denying the resurrection. We know when Paul went to Athens and he spoke of the resurrection, they sneered at him, they mocked. And that culture of the day, uh, their view of life and humanity and so forth was they had this separation of spirit from physical stuff, spiritual from the physical, and they considered the physical dirty and the spiritual the ideal. So the idea that the, the perfect state would be one where you had anything physical was contrary to what they understood. So that probably was factoring in on them. And that may not be our particular problem, but there are reasons we need to focus on the gospel. There are reasons personally, there are reasons culturally we need to focus on the gospel. One thing I thought of was was humanism. We live in a culture, we soak in a culture full of humanism. The culture of self-esteem is all around us. And it, it, it we stew in it. And everything's about self-esteem. And, and we need the gospel to help guide us into what is biblical. There are elements of the self-esteem, self-esteem culture that are, that are biblical, and there's a lot that isn't. And we need the gospel like the Corinthians needed it for the resurrection issues. We need it for humanism because we live in a humanistic society. This idea of self-esteem is actually a very recent phenomenon. It, it's influenced us to the point where the highest goal in education is to build up a student's self-esteem. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like I don't want to do that. But that, I don't think, is a worthy goal. And, but it has become the highest goal, and it's, it's really come out of modern psychology and just the drift of, of society, culture, and humanism. 
But it's really a foreign concept. If you look at history and you look outside the West, this self-esteem thing just isn't there. People don't look, conceive of themselves that way. They think of themselves as part of a group. They think of themselves in terms of duty. If you talk to World War II vets and people older than that about this self-esteem, it's just foreign to them. Though they raised a generation that has focused on self-esteem, they themselves just, it's not about what I think about myself. It's about my duty to my country. Thank God for that perspective of that generation. So we live in a society that's drenched in this stuff, and we need the gospel cure. We need the gospel to grip us, to help us, to navigate the waters of this culture, to understand. And the gospel has, uh, does a wonderful thing of addressing this whole self-esteem thing. I think the self-esteem issue comes out of and produces a high view of man, a very high view of man, and a very low view of God. And that's the culture we live in. And so, in some ways, the gospel is not all that relevant because, you know, I only want to hear things that, that help me feel good about myself. So don't tell me anything else. And, and, and God, I mean, just how relevant is God? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm happy. I'm making a good income. I got a nice family, you know, and I got my boat, and I go to, out my boat on the weekends. I mean, so what? But the gospel corrects that. The gospel gives us truth. And I think the gospel in its, in its whole context is a wonderful answer to our friends who bring those things up. I, I think there's a way, and can't get into that in this message too much, but there's a way to bring the truth of the gospel to their culture, but also to bring it to us. I was just recently stirred uh, in along these lines. There's never enough time. Um, I was recently stirred along these lines as I was reading a book called Deadline, and it's about uh, a man who goes to heaven. His name is Finney. And he goes to heaven, and he's there with an angel in this particular section. The angel's name is, I think, Zior or something. And, and they call God in this section Elyon. And, and it's a wonderful wake-up for me because there's a discussion going on here from heaven's perspective on things. And we need to hear this truth. We need to hear the truth of the gospel to wake us up from the self-esteem culture so that we might be influenced by the gospel and enjoy its fruit. Listen as they speak. This is... Zior, the angel, the mighty angel, speaking to Finney, speaking of the crucifixion. That little hill where little men were permitted to do unspeakable things to Elyon's son. My comrades and I jammed against the portal in heaven, begging permission to break through and strike down the cowards to unleash the relentless wrath of heaven's army. We longed to raise our swords as one to destroy every atom of the dark world. All that was in us thirsted for revenge. We ached to once and for all obliterate that cancer of rebellion against the Most High God. For the first time, Finney saw in Zyar seething anger, fierce rage erupting to the surface. The angel paced back and forth like a caged lion, seeming suddenly much taller and more powerful, no longer the gentle teacher. Finney backed out of his way as Zyar metamorphosed, appearing as a towering oak tree blown in a storm of wind and lightning, casting a menacing shadow and whipping out wildly with its branches. Here were these puny men, obsessed with the offenses of others against them, while themselves committing the ultimate offense of the universe, driving nails through the flesh of God. We longed to make them eat the dust of the ground and vomit clay. Any one of us could have struck them all down, and we yearned to do it. Millions of us, legion upon legion, crowded forward from every corner of heaven, pressing and pushing, crying out and begging leave to destroy those who would dare to curse and mock and savage the Holy Lamb of God. Zio's mighty voice echoed in Finney's ears, and he couldn't imagine there was anywhere in heaven outside its range. Zio was completely lost in the memories of that day. Then suddenly it was over. The angel sat down, the anger subsiding as swiftly as it had materialized. 
But Michael would not permit us, Zyra said softly, for Elion would not permit him. We writhed in agony, Zyra continued. We had never thought such pain possible here in the perfect realm, and yet we grew to know, though not completely understand, that all this was necessary to meet the demands of Elion's justice and his love. He did not need to rescue us to rescue him. With a single word, with merely a thought, he could have unmade all men, destroyed the universe, purged all creation of the ugliness that nailed him to the cross. But he did not. He would not. He did not go there to be rescued. He went there to rescue. I can say the words which attempt to explain what happened on that day when Elion's son died. Zion drew a deep breath. But there are only words. I will never understand it. Yet I will never give up contemplating it, and I will never run out of time to do so, nor ever lack the company of those who share my quest and are eager to contemplate the wonder with me. And of all the adventures eternity will bring, most of which I can no more guess than you, the fact that Elyon was slain to buy the souls of men will overshadow everything. May his name be forever praised. That's truth from Scripture that makes our pursuit of self-esteem seem petty and silly. There's one much more worthy of our attention and our affection. There's a meaning in life much greater than how we feel about ourselves. There's something more glorious and worthy than self-esteem. It's Him, God the Son, dying for us on the cross so that He could purchase us, so that we could see His glory and His goodness and love Him forever. The gospel adjusts that mistaken cultural perspective for us. We stand, we live by the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I've heard it once said, this whole gospel-centered focus, isn't it just morbidity? Isn't it just being morbid? Focusing on someone on the cross, dead, for sinners, and calling me to death? And my answer to that is, yes, it is very morbid. It's, it's more morbid than you even understand. But there's life on the other side of it. See, the cross is about death. The Son of God dying, and you, if you are a believer, dying with Him. There's no way around that. There's no better way to get to the, what's on the other side. We have to go through death. We have to go through the horror of the cross. We have to go through what the cross calls us to. To turn from our sin, to die with Him to ourselves. But on the other side is a resurrection. On the other side is new life. On the other side is abundant life. On the other side is eternal life. And that's not morbid. That's glorious. But there's no other way to get there than through the gospel. So Paul brings the truth of the gospel. He wants to remind them of the gospel. He starts to explain the elements of the gospel. He says... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. And he goes on. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That is the core, the meat of the Gospel. He rose from the dead on the third day. That is an essential element of the Gospel. It may not be as core as the cross and the atonement, the payment for sin itself, but it is an essential element. And when you drop off the resurrection, you lose the gospel. And so Paul brings this to them. He wants them to understand these important elements. Christ died for our sins. Not just any person. Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the promises to Israel, the ultimate man, the ultimate Israel, the perfect one, the holy one, the king. Christ means the anointed one. The king, the Messiah. This is the one who died. God, the man died 
for our sins. He died. He didn't swoon. He died. He bore the wrath of God for sin, for your sin. He bore the wrath of God towards you for your sin. Our society wonders, and I think even the Christian church wonders, well, really, what is sin? It's important for us to understand what is sin. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is rebellion against God, not in the abstract. It's not about breaking rules. It's about rebellion against a God who has been good and who has made mankind and has displayed His glory. Creation displays the goodness of God. His power, His nature are in creation. He made Adam and Eve. He made mankind. And He called us to obedience. Not because He's harsh. If you read Genesis 1, He says it's good. It's very good. In the context of His infinite goodness, He called us to obedience. And what did we do? We rebelled against Him. Later on, in the context of His deliverance of Israel from Egypt, His goodness, His deliverance, His power over them, He laid down the law and said, you must obey. So sin is rebellion against His right requirements in the context of His goodness. That's something I think helpful for us when we talk to others about sin. It's not in the abstract. It's not just breaking a rule. It's breaking the rules of a good and perfect God who has always been good to us. It's it's open rebellion, knowledgeable rebellion against Him. So Christ died for these sins. He's paid the penalty for our sins. He was buried. They affirmed His death, His burial. He was indeed dead. That's why Paul brings it in. That's why it's part of the Gospel. He was buried. This affirmed His death. And then it says on the third day, He was raised. He was raised. While the cross is the core of the Gospel, it is not the entirety of the Gospel. For the assurance of our justification, what was accomplished on the cross, and the promise of our redemption, having new bodies and new life one day, is contained in the resurrection. It's contained in the resurrection. We don't merely worship a Savior hanging on a cross. As glorious as that is, as wonderful as that truth is for us, we worship a Savior who's risen from the dead, victorious over sin and death. We worship a risen Savior. Yes, the atonement should be an object of awe and wonder for us, but the resurrection is the punctuation to the atonement. It's the the end of the sentence. It's the exclamation point. This is indeed valid. This is indeed uh, satisfies as a father in every way. Because he has risen, we know we are indeed forgiven if we are his. For God said, I am satisfied. And we know that we have new life. And he verified that by rising from the dead and appearing. So Paul brings that in. He wants the Corinthians to understand. You know, this isn't just a nice story. He actually appeared to people. Lots of people. He appeared to Peter, and he appeared, he appeared to the apostles. He appeared to James, and last of all, Paul. And that's a wonderful story. We'll have time in Easter time probably to visit that a little more, but, but it's just wonderful. The word he appeared is the same word that's used for his appearances in the Old Testament. God manifested his glory. He manifested his presence. And it's just wonderful reading about that. You know the story with Mary going there and thinking, you know, where did they, where did they put the body? And, and he appears to her. He appears. And just what that must have been like for Mary. So he appeared to, to demonstrate and to affirm that he indeed was risen. Appeared to many people. Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that because they are doubting this resurrection thing. And so he says he appeared to all these people. 500 of them at one time. Most of them are still alive. You want to go talk to them? Go talk to them. He indeed has appeared. His resurrection has occurred. And he says in the this, in this section as well, it's according to the Scriptures. It's according to the church, the apostles. So he's giving them evidence. And then he finishes, and we'll finish. 
with his example, Paul's example. And, uh, if the band could come up as we close. If I could just have your permission for a few more minutes. I feel like I ask that like almost every Sunday, so please forgive me. But I want you guys to hear this last section that Paul gives us his example of a person who is gripped by the gospel. He says in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul is bringing his example. I don't think he's just giving a story. He wants them to understand the storyline. He wants to teach them through his example. He wants to say, Corinthians, here's an example, by God's grace, of what a gospel-centered life looks like. So Paul focuses on a few things. The gospel has gripped Paul. The gospel has got a hold of this guy and changed his life. And it's produced a number of things in his life. There's fruit in his life. He is one who has received. He's one who's standing. He's one who is being saved. The gospel is producing fruit in Paul's life. And one thing it has produced is humility. Look at how Paul views himself. For I am the least of the apostles. Now this is a guy who had everything. Heritage, education, wealth, prestige. So his former life before he was a Christian. And also his current life. This guy is, if someone could tout their credentials, Paul could. Think of what Paul did. I mean, he planted planted number of churches. I mean, probably in reality, hundreds or so were affected by him directly, planted directly through his ministry. He wrote, what is it, 17 of the 27 or 13 of the 27 New Testament books. Tremendous influence. Tremendous fruit in his life. Yet what does he say? I am the least of all the apostles. He's understood the cross. He's understood his life. He's understood sin. So it has produced humility in his life. He sees himself according to his sin and unworthiness. Paul doesn't have self-esteem, folks. He lacks it entirely. He recognizes that he has sinned against God. He's not just putting on the humble thing. You know, I want to act humble because I'm supposed to be that way. I think Paul has gripped the, the, the gravity of his sin. Now, his sin in particular was, was very grave, for he says, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He he did the ultimate insult to God. Ultimately. He sought to mutilate and kill his bride. And he knew that. He saw his sin. The truth of the gospel and his experience of the gospel caused him to be humble because he realized, my sin is great. It's great. And I don't bring anything to the table here but my sin. So there was humility in his life. He could say this, but he, he, he grasped that. He grasped his unworthiness. Humility is not pretending to be humble, folks. Humility is being truthful according to reality, according to who we are. Humility is looking deep inside and saying, what's there isn't too pretty, and I don't have ultimately anything to boast, to base my esteem on. I don't have anything. I can pretend the self-esteem thing, but I ultimately don't have anything. Not to deny the wonder of God's creation we're made in His image, not to create any hatred towards ourselves or others, but ultimately there's nothing there. Paul understood that, but he didn't stop there. He said, next, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He understood the the wonderful power of the gospel, that he had experienced grace. And now he was who he was. Now he was a son of God, a child of God. He belonged to him. He's forgiven. He's justified. He's being saved. He will be saved. He recognizes that. He recognizes, too, I'm an apostle by grace. So he has this awareness, this appreciation, and a dependency on grace. That's the fruit in his life. 
And then finally, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all the rest. See, a gospel-centered life, a life gripped by the gospel, does not just sit around and say, oh, how wonderful it is to be saved. Though it does say that. It doesn't just say, oh, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But there's power in our lives. There's grace active in our lives to work for the Lord, to serve the Lord, to live for Him. So His grace was active in Paul's life. He's an example to the Corinthians of a, of a life, life gripped by the gospel and the grace and the power and the truth of Christ crucified and risen, fueling him for what he did. He strove, he labored, he worked hard, he gave his life. He had basically the gospel bottle rocket, the gospel rocket strapped to his back and, and God had lit the fire and he was propelled forward by the gospel. He was doing stuff for God. He was on fire for God. His life had much fruit. It was the grace of God. He worked harder than all the rest because he was gripped by the gospel. It had changed his life. It was gripping him. And he finishes, but though not I, it was the grace of God. He recognizes this fuel this drive, this ability to accomplish things is the grace of God, ultimately. I'm active, I'm in it, but it's actually the grace. It's this rocket on my back that someone else put there and someone else lit that's driving me. Yes, I'm doing something. I'm active, but it's Him. It is He in me that's doing these things. Question, conclusion. Are you being gripped by the gospel? Are you grasping the gospel? Is your life mirroring to some degree the life of Paul? Now, none of us are an Apostle Paul. None of us will ever be. But is the gospel fueling you? Is the gospel driving you? Is the gospel meeting you? The truth of the gospel and the wonder of the gospel meeting you in your darkest moments and giving you lights? Is it motivating you to work hard by grace, in freedom, but nevertheless work hard? That's to be the impact here. That's what Paul wants the Corinthians to understand. He wants them to understand this gospel and all its truth must be grasped, must be gripped. Particularly the resurrection he's concerned for, but the whole thing must be gripped, must, much be, must be grasped by the Christian. It is what the Christian life is all about. So let us be gripped. My commitment as your pastor, and, and I know everyone, many people I know in this church, their commitment is that we would be focused on the gospel, that we would be gripped we would grip, grasp the gospel ourselves, that we might live the Christian life that, unlike the Everglades, the flow might come and there might be fruit to his glory. So let's conc- conclude this morning uh, by singing. Let me just pray. Lord, we just thank you for this truth in your word. And we just ask you, Lord, to uh, grip us with the gospel. That we would grasp the gospel. We would grasp its relevance. We would grasp the elements. We would grasp the example. And Lord, we would be changed and you would be glorified. Yet not us, but the grace of God in us, that you would get the glory. We thank you, Lord. So be magnified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and close.